A little side note to say that we are recording this at half term, so you may hear the sounds of children, pets, uninvited guests burbling in the background. And also, it's maybe worth pointing out that uh, Robert is over on the other side of the world in Australia, so occasionally the Wi-Fi might sound like it's um, struggling to cover those thousands and thousands of miles. I'm Robert Forster, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo Associate Editor Ian Harrison and Robert Forster. Hello, gang. Hello. Hello. Now, Robert has been creating music and crafting exquisite songs for over 40 years, first in The Go-Betweens with co-writer and singer the late Grant McLennan, and since 1990 as a solo writer of oblique individualist beauty. He has a new album out, the crisp, nostalgic, yet powerfully alive, The Candle and the Flame. And uh, before we speak to him, here's a little clip of one of many wonderful tracks from the record, the warm, through-the-ages love song to his wife, Karen Baumler, Tender Years, written by Robert Forster, and released on Tapet Records. I see her through the ages She's a book of a thousand pages That you can't thumb Images of her are vivid Her beauty has not withered From her entrance in chapter one Robert, welcome. It's really lovely to have you here. Um, this record was, I'm right in thinking, very much a family affair with your, recorded with your wife, your son, your daughter, recorded whilst your wife was undergoing chemotherapy for ovarian cancer. And one of the things I was thinking while I was listening to it is, is it weird having such an intimate, almost private album, the kind of family album now out in public for everyone to hear? It is a little bit. Um, the thing was that the, the album grew. We didn't, we didn't start playing songs late at night with acoustic guitar and current singing and then Lewis popping over because he was visiting us all the time to see how his mum was going. And then he started playing guitar. We didn't really think of, of making a record. That came later. And, and so the record came about we just playing these songs and then without going into the whole story, we just made this sort of document, seven hours recording before Curran had this major procedure. And so, and two of those songs... I don't do drugs, I do time, and it's only poison. From that seven-hour session, we're all playing live, myself, Curran, Lewis, our son, and Adele Pickbands, who played in the go-betweens from 2000-2006. And we just heard two songs that sounded like they, those two songs, I said, could be on an album. And so that's when the idea started, but we had to see how Curran was going, etc. So it, it part of it was not an intentional thing 
And so for it to, to grow and come out the way that it has doesn't make it feel such a intimate, secret thing that came out. Yeah. Um, we, we didn't go in with that intention. And somehow that lessens things. Somehow that makes um, the record, I wouldn't say not, not so personal, but it, it just sort of, we're, basically we're happy for the record to go out and, and really Cara and I haven't felt any of those feelings that we're sharing too much or suddenly it's a shock that it's out there. We, yeah. we don't feel that. I, I wanted to ask you, Robert, um, now the record you know, has been out in the world, because I spoke to you about it before it was, yeah. Has anyone in a sort of similar situation spoken to you about it? Because I was wondering if it did bring, you know, a kind of solace, maybe. Um, look, it's it's brought quite a, a few things. Um, one of the one of the yeah, like things are happening. There's sort of um, Karen's about to, to um, on Wednesday about to take part in a a campaign about ovarian cancer, um, and which is sort of aligned in Australia with a fashion brand, um, with, there's going to be quite a big thing. Um, so those sort of things um, are suddenly happening. Um, and we are, you know, like I see things on, on Facebook, um, the people writing in. Um, and strangely enough, some, uh, some interviews I've done, people have started to share chronic health issues with me. When I start to talk about it, you know, like interviews, yeah. with interviews I've done. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's one thing that has started to happen, which is like a really good thing, and particularly for Karen, she is very much you know like um, willing to talk about it, and um, she's now starting to to do more interviews, and uh, that's certainly come from the record being out. That openness and kind of the, that sort of warmth and kind of the welcoming kind of quality is is kind of evident on the album. And I wonder whether you kind of hear it and think, oh, that's also me changing as a songwriter. It's changed how, what I reveal about myself, how much of myself I put in to the songs as opposed to like the, the version of Robert Forster, who I might previously have put in there. Have you felt that you've changed as a songwriter during this period because of that? Uh no, I mean, eight of the songs were written beforehand and there's just one yeah. uh, that, that was written after. I think it's... I certainly didn't expect to be make, ever make an album like this. Yes. Um, I really... Because it breaks all the rules. It's There's no four weeks or four months in a rehearsal studio. There's no four weeks or four months in any kind of recording studio. Um there's none of that. I, I didn't imagine us recording with Lewis, our son. He, the Goonsacks were going when we started making the record. So his career was going one way and, and, and mine um, with Karen was another. And I never really thought they'd meet in such a big way. Um, and um, so there's a lot of... I sing, you know, and minor things like I sing all the, the lyric, all, all of the vocals on the album alive, you know, just um, I've never done that. So th there's all these firsts yeah. with, with this record. 
Um, but, but the first are maybe kind of sonic rather than lyric. You know, they're, li they're sonic yeah, first yeah, rather than definitely. lyrical first. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. The, the way it's recorded, the way it's made, um, that's what all the um, the sort of new things and breakthroughs are. But the same, I mean, but the, the, the idea of you're doing things for the first time. Um, I know that we're there's always going to be a part of of you that we always associate with Grant McLennan. Yeah, but it seems like you're certainly on the on Inferno as well as this record. Yeah. Is it fair to say, Robert, that you are growing even more into yourself? I think that, that so. Me, you were uh, gone. Yeah, no, I think so. I think that's a good point. Um, the last three records I've made. Um, songs to play Inferno and now the Candle and the Flame, I think are the most consistent. I don't want to how far I can go back, but to me they're, they're the most consistent records and cycles of songs I've written, uh, and it surprises me because I th I thought I'd be burning out by now. I thought I'd be you know like struggling to write songs and. It's it's astonishes me that I'm still um, writing and writing to this standard, and I can feel that um, the quality is, is is totally there. Um, and I, I think it, you know I, I've noticed a turning on this record when I've been talking to people um, that there's sort of suddenly more of an appreciation of what I've done over a period of time. Mm -hmm. I think part of that appreciation comes from the fact that I've stuck to, stuck to what I wanted to do. You know, like I, I've just sort of, I wanted to write really good songs. I want to record them well. I don't do an album every two years. Normally it's every four years or there's bigger gaps. I just think time's caught up with me a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. And with the story of this record, um, I can feel that there's been some kind of change. And I think that, as I said, I think I've kept up the standard of what I've been doing and it's been much more appreciated. Yeah. We, we, I mean, I suppose, you know, rock and roll, for want of a better word, you know, this idea that it's a, you know, a, a youth phenomenon, um, which you don't get in other areas of, you know, art. No. But, but we're getting over that now, aren't we, I think? Go on, I think yeah. so, yeah. Yes, Andrew. One of the questions I wanted to ask is kind of related to that. As a young man, you kind of embrace the idea of a certain kind of notion of masculine maturity, you know, kind of that you perhaps when you were young, you want, you know, the, the, the dyeing your hair platinum blonde to resemble yeah. bright, br Blake Carrington, you know, the, the, yeah. you're, you're, you're me and you're kind of posture suggested a young man who wanted to be older. Now that you are that older man, how how does that feel, kind of this world that perhaps you wanted to, you know, you, you were reaching towards and would have preferred to be in now that you are in that world of, of, of kind of studied intelligent maturity and learnedness? How, you know, how different does it feel? What's it like actually being in Blake Carrington world now? <laughs> it feels very comfortable. Yeah. Um, and I I am enjoying it. But you're right. I when when I was when I was in my twenties and and living in in London, I besides you know people like Blake Carrington, you know like some someone like um, 
you know, like people like, you know, um, Samuel Beckett, you know, someone yeah. like him was a huge, I can remember seeing photos of Beckett. Um, they were, I think we were in the Guardian in the, in the mid 80s and, and, you know, like him sort of in his mid 70s, you know, with the sort of hawk-like face and the wild mm. hair and the turtleneck. And I, I just thought everything's okay for the next 50 years. You know what I mean? I, <laughs> I thought I don't have to worry about getting old. Because, you know, and this was me at 26, 27. There's Beckett, 50, here, 50 years ahead of me, age is taken care of. Yeah. And so I I just moved towards that. And, and he was an inspiration besides his writing, but just the way he looked. Yeah. He was obviously totally still on fire. He looked like, you know, like better than anyone in the Jesus and Mary chain. Do you know what I mean? He, he was just like... <laughs> Or, or, the, or the Smiths. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It was like he just looked like like the sharpest, hippest guy that was around, and he was seventy six. And so I just that just that really hit me, and it 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 put age away. And so I've mm. been I've been thinking about that and living like that since. Magnificent, and very very well too, may I say? Thank you, thank you. <laughs> the, the Mojo Record Club. The the record that you've brought in to talk about today is First Take, the debut album by the American soul singer, soul singer, jazz singer, gospel singer, Roberta Flack, released yeah. um, June 20th, 1969 on Atlantic Records. And eventually a million seller, not immediately, uh, a million seller after her, you and McColl cover, the first time ever I saw yep. your face, featured yep. on the soundtrack to... Clint Eastwood's 1971 film play Misty for me. And I think it eventually won a Grammy in 1973, so four years after the album wow. came out. Before we start, let's hear a little bit of that incredible cover version. This is The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, written by Ewan McCall and arranged and conducted by William Fisher and sung by Roberta Flack, released on Atlantic Records. Ever I saw your thought the sun rose in your eyes and the moon and the stars. The thing that struck me uh, listening to that and I know there are many other great songs on it but I thought that was a good place to start I've heard first time ever I saw your face so many times and yeah. yet it still has this ability to just stop the world and you have to yeah. do nothing else but just kind of go I have yeah. to listen to this again yeah incredible but I suppose my question is can you remember the first time you would have heard first take I do, I do, because it was um, it was at the end of nineteen. This is why the, the records, besides the uh, how much I love the record, it's it's almost sort of a, and this can often happen with records. I think it's where they hit you in your life, and and almost a sideways thing that they do besides um, how good the record was. And, and I, I this was in. I got the record in Brisbane in nineteen ninety five. And I hadn't written a decent song in three years. And um, 
and I really thought it was over. And uh, and one of the consequences was going to a record store near where I lived, and I started to look in different sections of the record shop. I started I I and so I went over to jazz soul, and I just started to flick through racks that I don't normally do or or do often, and I came across this record, and. I only knew her from first time. Um, I saw your face and um, Killing Me Softly. So I knew she had some early 70s hits and I saw that this track was on the, the record. And um, I saw that it was on Atlantic. It looked late 60s. It probably cost $8. It was vinyl. And I thought I'd just give it a go. And uh, I took it home to just play something else. And I put it on the record player. And um, besides how great the, the record was, it was just so wonderful to be listening to something that wasn't a singer-songwriter and to be listening to a record that really breathed and took us time and threw all the rules out in terms of impact. It wasn't pop or rock. It wasn't country. Uh, it wasn't blues. And it was just this... Just the sound of the record and her voice, um, it just enchanted me. And it, it, and also, for my, my songwriting started soon after this. It was a very inspirational record because I started to just, I dropped a lot of things and started to go back to basics, just, just songs with just a band playing, little band playing I had, and we just played two chords for 10 minutes. And, and it, it came from this record. Um, so yes, I, I remember quite clearly, um, and and the record was a, a revelation to me. I mean, it is um, an amazing record. It was recorded after the the jazz pianist Les McCann discovered um, Roberta Flack. It was a, had been a teacher. She was a classically trained yeah. musician, but yeah. she'd been a teacher, and she was basically yeah. singing in a a Washington nightclub, a gay bar that she later explained. It was right. kind of a, a gay bar in Washington D.C. And uh, yeah. Les McCann said when he heard her voice that it touched, tapped, trapped, and kicked every emotion I've ever known. And the thing that, that one of the, the, the two things I wanted to talk to you about was, and I think you've just touched on one, which is the band, the intimate band sound yeah. on the record. And the arrangements are by a guy called William S. Fisher. And the, thing, yeah. the things that you notice throughout the record is the bass playing of uh, the jazz bassist Ron Carter. Yeah. So, but first, yeah, I wanted to ask about just what is it that is so powerful about that, the sound of this record? It's, it's an astounding sound, um, beginning with her voice. Yeah. Um, and you can really hear that it's a live recording because you can actually hear her going on and off the microphone. Yeah. And so there's times when she wants to really sort of either emphasize something or she's really excited and the song's building and the band's doing something to her and she really gets close to the mic and she just sort of lets rip. Um, and there's other times, like when, when you listen to the first time, ever I saw your face and, and she's just enunciating everything really crisply and clearly. Um, and, and there's just this reverb and sound of the room, you know, like... Yeah just something with the vocal, the equipment in the Atlantic studio in 1969, just somehow bang, gets the voice. 
Um, and the, the, the base, you know, like is, is, is um, obviously central. There's brass and strings that come in very tastefully, um, but basically it's a live, um, it's a little bit like a record that it's, that it's not too far away from that's vaguely in the era is Astral Weeks. Do you know yes. what I mean? It's yeah. sort of, it's sort of mm. again, there's a lot of six-minute songs. I know the band goes longer, but there, there's just this sort of jazz feel to it with a singer that's really going for it the way Van does and the way Roberta Flack does. And so um, that was probably my, my one reference point, really, when I was listening to record back in the mid-'90s, was that it, it reminded me a little bit of that with what was going on. Um and that must just have been in, in the air at the time, you know, like recording an American studio, a good, decent American studio in the late 60s. If you had an upright bass player and you had a, a good, you know, field drummer, you were on piano and, and everything was pretty sparse. Well, that's how good it was going to sound. One of the amazing things is that the producer, Joel Dawn, could only yeah. hear in one ear. So he couldn't hear right. in... He couldn't hear in stereo. He could only hear in mono. Wow. Um, yeah. But that thing that you say, and there literally is, there are points on that record where you can hear the hum of the room. So everything yeah. drops away. And there's this, yeah. this, there's this sound that is remaining that is the yeah. sound of the room. It's astonishing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, if they're going to um, record, like, I mean, they could record in a smaller room, but, but it's just like... To, to do it live, which they're obviously doing, then, you know, like a piano takes up a lot of space. She'd be playing a, a, a concert piano. Um, and so, you know, like the bass would be a, be a fair amount away, the drums are over there. You know, like you need a big room. I imagine, you know, like the strings and the, the, the brass, and there's some acoustic guitar, Spanishy guitar. Maybe that was done live as well. But you, you'd need a big room, and then it's just got this... I think it's the jazz feel, you know, like it's just that the way they were doing things then with the, the things were, it's very live, very live record. Mm. She, she does, um, I mean, it's all, it's all a you know, fantastic record, one of these sort of, you know, near perfect little yeah. um, works of art. And I, but it did occur to me because she does, hey, that's no way to say goodbye yeah. by Leonard Cohen. Yeah. You're thinking if she just done Hallelujah, you know, this record would be, everyone would know it, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, look, and, and she does a lovely, she does a, a lovely version of that. Um, it's just a little bit quicker than his. And I don't know if you, when I was listening to it um, today, you know, like reacquainting myself with it, I, I, I wondered if, if Leonard ever heard that version. You know, yeah. like um, mm. there's a lot of cover versions, you know, of this song and of his material. If he ever heard it, because I thought, you know, he would love this. This is just such yeah. a beautiful version. Yeah. And it's different. You know, she, she's she got this sort of tempo to it um, that is really, really nice. I'm just going to say, um, listeners probably do know this, but Robert is also um, uh, a journalist. And his journalism is much, much, much better than the, you know, the records Andrew and I would make. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> and you did a, a good, you did a review, didn't you, of um, Roberta Flack and Leonard Cohen on successive nights in Brisbane, didn't you? Yes, that's true. I was thinking of that too. Look, and, uh, you know, I went, 
you know, like because of this record, basically. I, I've heard the ones after um, as well. And, and there's, um, you know, through the 70s, it's a bit diminishing returns. But, you know, like the first couple of albums are really great. And it, it mm. was a sad night. It was, it was a sad night for her. And Leonard was brilliant. Um, it was just, you know, she was, I don't, you know, it, she sang, you know, but it, it wasn't, um, it, it didn't work. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was sort of, I don't know, you know, like she, she wasn't really into it. I don't know why she was mm-hmm. there, basically. Um, but, you know, yeah. obviously someone brought out to Australia and it was just a little bit sad and uh, it, it's sort of, she wasn't enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. But is it just, just something that strikes one, isn't it? You know, those two, those, almost touching, just passing, you know? Yeah. I know, I know. Actually, I, I now, now that I, rem, I remember it. I was wondering if they were going to pass, if they, if because the connection is that song, you know, um, the um, there's no ways. Um, hey, this is no way to say goodbye. Um, and I was wondering if if they would, because he obviously performed it. She didn't, um, mm. but he performed it the next night. Uh, and it would have been nice if there had been some sort of crossover there, but there, there wasn't. Robert, as someone who is adept at the art of the cover version, um, direct listeners to your 1994 LP, I Had a New York Girlfriend, and listening to Roberta's covers on this album, yeah. what is, as, as a listener and also as a performer, what is the secret of a good cover version? I think um, I think for a start, she would have played these songs a lot live, you know, in 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 her her club act. So she would have performed a couple of years, and before she went, this is why she can do it in the studio. I'm sure that she was playing quite a lot of those songs live, um, and so I think you know, just having pl- I know this is a very obvious answer, but actually having played them night after night for a year or two would you really get under their skin um and i think she's um the the i think she's connected you know like obviously the especially the opening track compared to what um which is like a masterpiece yeah she she's right with the lyric i mean there's that and trying times which is on side two the political, you know, like this is nineteen the late sixties America um songs. So she's obviously very connected with 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 them. Um and I think um I think she's the the you know like the the Ewan McCall song, you know, first time ever I saw your face, has obviously got a lot of space. So I, mm. I think that sort of suits her voice. Um so I think I think it's choosing material that you feel committed to, and it suits your voice. Yeah, is two things that that come to mind. Um, and I I don't think she's really, she's not doing like one thing. She's not doing a makeover of these songs. No. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not like um, you know, like you know, like when when Brian Ferry did a hard rain's gonna fall. You know, and it was like, oh, that's a brilliant idea. You know, like. Everyone knew that song as, uh, you know, Dylan's acoustic 
um, version, everyone knows that, and suddenly it turned into a stomping rock and roll song, you know, that was hidden in that original version, and you make something new. I don't think she's doing that. I think she, these are quite faithful renditions of these songs in a way, but it's just her extraordinary talent and the band and the sound that just explodes them. But, I mean, going back to that, that version of First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, by slowing it down, by making yeah. it this kind of almost kind of just there's a, a caution in the way she delivers yeah. those lyrics. That does reveal, certainly from the, the version by you and McCall, which is, you know, it makes it something more than a just a love song. Yeah. And I, and I think because I remember when... Um, I remember reading that when um, Clint Eastwood contacted her to say that he wanted to use it in Play Misty for Me, her first response was, well, I'm going to have to record a version, a new version and speed it up. It's too slow. And yeah. obviously, you know, Clint, a, a jazz head, said, no, yes, you know, we need to keep it exactly, we need that exact version from the record. And kind yeah. of could see how that kind of, that caution, that tension in the song yeah. Yeah. added to the film, you know, because the film is a thriller. And so you yeah, get yeah. that kind of attention within a love song works perfectly for a, yeah, yeah. For a movie that's it's, a thriller. It's, yeah, it's also, it's also that version is like a, a nighttime vibe yes. to me. I mean, it's, it's, it's late night FM radio, um, you know, like drifty and like narcotic almost, you know, it's, it's, um, and, but I, yeah, it's her, her vocal on it and there's hardly any arrangement on it as well. It's her voice carrying the whole thing, you know, it's the tempo of her voice yeah. that do it. There's a, I wanted to play a little clip. There's an interview that she gave in Adelaide in 1973 where she talks about the kind of covers that she's playing on the album and, and basically saying that it, it wasn't the, the kind of music that she was used to, that she'd been trained to. Popular music, um, as a classically trained musician, popular music was not the most challenging kind of music for me to play. And to see grown people acting like kids behind a little simple song is a kind of a different experience for somebody. That's a strange kind of power that you have as a performer, as an, as an artist. It was hard work, right? Nobody poured me into a gown. They didn't put me into a mold. They didn't fashion my face. They didn't fashion my figure. I've made it purely on talent. I'm Robert Forster, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. First thing I need to say is thank you so much for bringing in that record. It was just, I mean, to revisit it and to kind of actually kind of tune into the sound of it, because one of the things I think is, it's a record that I thought I knew, you know, I kind of, well, I know that record. And I think the thing I noticed about it revisiting, it was exactly the thing that you said. The thing that I'd forgotten about was just the, the sound of the room, the production, the stillness of it, the live quality that it has. Yeah. And, and that the one-two punch at the start, you know, like doing compared to what, which is, you know, like a, a groove and she's spitting out the lyrics with all this power. And then the second song starts... And she's singing in Spanish. Yeah. And you, you, you just go, and she's got complete command of it. And it's this gorgeous sort of building, seven minute. And you're just going, that's, that's, that's one of the greatest one, two yeah. starts I've ever heard on a record in my life. You know? it's, it's kind of what the, kid, 
what the kids would now call a show reel, isn't it? It's like this is er- this is everything I can do here, you know, kind of take a listen to this. Okay, Robert, then the next part of the show, this is where we review some of the new records of the week. The record I've brought on is Travel, which is the 19th studio album by the minimalist Australian improvisational trio called The Next. You, I'm guessing that you are familiar with the work of The Next. Oh, yes, true. Yeah. Yes, yes, definitely. What do you know about them and how long have you known about them? Well, I really don't know much about them. I've never seen them play live. We could play a little extract from this track, Signal. Oh, that'd be good. This is an extract from the track Signal, written by the Necks and released on Northern Spy Records. album grew out of their they had got into this practice of starting every day in the studio with a kind of communal improvisation which kind of reminded me of what you were saying about how you were playing with the the family and kind of how your new yeah. album grew out of that and so they've there's kind of four tracks on it four 20 minute tracks wow and they're, kind of, and they're kind of hypnotic and dubby and infectious and they move from these kind of cyclical kind of cosmic grooves grooves to these sort of lush shimmering exploratory patterns i mean i guess the thing is it's not for everyone but it feels very much like it is for me um i, th- I think andrew you know you were saying it's um very much for you and i do like i, I like watching improvised music but i think sometimes it's best consumed in a live setting yeah and I think this record, I, I mean, I, I dug it. I, I liked its, you know, great tension and release. But I did think, and this may just be me, but I, I was, sometimes my attention did wander. You know, I, I was wanting maybe a little bit more structure or some, you know, some words or some kind of, something to make sense of it. I think your so, attention wandering is okay. I think that's actually one of the purposes of it. It's kind of, there are tracks there that are, that feel like, tracks that you can kind of get lost in that are kind of you can kind of they're, they're kind of quite meditative and mm. you know and and so they're they're four very, i think they're four very different moods on the record you know and sort of and i kind of like that i don't feel that music necessarily always has to have my 100 percent divided attention that mm. sometimes it can be this kind of you know ambient color in the room Robert, is your, I mean, do you, I mean, in terms of that world of kind of exploratory, experimental, instrumental music, is that something that you kind of go into the world of much? Or are you like Ian, you prefer the world of lyrics and structure and vocals? And Normally, normally I do. Um, but I also like instrumental um, music. Um, and I, I go through periods where, I do listen to it. it. It's sort of a little bit like um, a sort of palate cleanser, you know, um, and I get rid of lyrics out of my head and um, I just like um, the sound of the record. Another record I, I actually bought, um, strangely enough, 
at this time when you know, like talking about late 1995 another record that i bought that i played a lot with with uh roberta flax first take i don't know if you've heard this person do you know herbie man yeah oh yeah yeah um well he he it's his best known record it's called memphis underground and oh, um amazing record yeah yeah, and so I was. That was another record that I got very much at the same time. I knew nothing about Herbie, Herbie Man, and I played that record not as much as the Roberta Flack record, but I played that a lot. And again, to put on a record with that sort of that groove and just the flute coming in and like a you know like a long tracks was fantastic. Do you know what I mean? And I could write off that. I, I found that I, obviously, I wasn't going to try and do, I wasn't going to buy a flute and and um, try and um, do that. But it just sort of, it meant I could just pick up a guitar and there was no sort of songwriter in my head and it was like rhythm-based and that was really, really good. You know, like I, mm-hmm. I just found that it just completely opened me up and... Um, and I started to write a lot of a lot of the songs that were on the Warm Nights album that I made in 1996 with Edwin in London, Edwin Collins in London, were based around this sort of feeling that I was getting off these records. And it also has a fan, another fantastic cover version on it because is it that's the one with um, his cover version of "Hold On, I'm Coming" on yeah. it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. again is another brilliant piece of kind of instrumental interpretation of a. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is. Um, yeah, no, I, it, it was funny because I didn't know it, you know, before, you know, the, the world got connected, I didn't I didn't know much about him. You know, like I, I couldn't find anything. And then I, I went to New York. I was doing an interview there um, a couple of months, you know, on the when I was doing the Warm Nights um, tour. I, I toured there and I was talking to a journalist in, um, in New York and um, – he, the previous interview with, was the Beastie Boys. And I said, oh, you know, like, what were they talking about? And he said, oh, they're really excited about this guy called Herbie Mann. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and so I just went, oh, okay, all right. So he sort of goes into that um, world as well, you know, like the, he's, he's appreciated there, you know. If I was going to make a facetious comment, say, Robert, give in to the flute. I can see you with the flute. <laughs> with your shirt. No, I, <laughs> no, no, it's a wild look. I, I don't, I don't know what happened But he made quite a few albums. Like he, yeah. he obviously carved out some, some kind of career. You know, he has gro- he has the groove. I think that's the mm. thing. It's like when he's, you know, when he's on it, he, he has the groove. He he can sit that flute in, yeah, with that band, and that's a full on Memphis rock, solely band flying in you know 1971 or something really going for it and he just locks it in it's really incredible well i'm yeah. gonna try and... we, we talked don't we about oh. so, no go on in sorry andrew we'll have to add all this out if i was just going to make the the point that you know we talk about players being lyrical and some of them are to the point where, you know, you, you kind of, you don't mind that there's no sort of voice because there is a voice. There's a voice of somebody playing a flute or the organ. Or yes, yes. Like yeah, 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 yeah. It's a melody. That's what's, yeah. 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 That. Ian, what yeah. is your yes. new record of the week? My new record of the week, it is called Intrigue. 
and it's subtitled Progressive Sounds in UK Alternative Music, 1979 to 1989. And it is a 58-track monster mixtape, basically, by Stephen Wilson, um, solo artist and also a member of Porcupine Tree. And, I mean, what, what, a, what a dream commission. You know, you get to put a load of music that you really like and do a, do a big mixtape of it, you know, make a, a narrative out of it, which he has done. And I think, you know, in, in short, it is trying to encompass, you know, the idea of the progressive spirit. This idea that just because punk rock comes along, people don't stop being, having these progressive ideas that, you know, are usually associated with the earlier 70s. And, um, it, you know, there is a quite remarkable array of, of stuff on it. I mean, I could just read out the groups that are on it for a bit, but, you know, you've got um, Kicks Off With Wire, it's got The Stranglers on it. And this is all, you know, under the you know, umbrella of, of neo-prog almost. Uh, Dirty Column, This Heat, Swell Maps. Um, towards the end, he does go, you know, you have like Ghost Town by the Specials and The Art of Noise and uh, things like this. But uh, I have to say I enjoyed it enormously. You know, things of this long aren't often quite so, um, you know, they're very long, aren't they? You know, we get bored, we often do other things. But um, no, I, I really enjoyed this. And it made me think about, you know, what is this progressive spirit anyway? It's one of those ideas where he's chosen tracks to prove a theory um, that people yeah. probably hadn't thought before. It's interesting yeah. because I could, I, would, I could imagine him, if, he'd, if he casts his net wider than the UK for the next, next volume, and I'm sure there will be a new volume, given his wide parameters of what prog is, I can imagine yeah. him including a track like River of Money on it. Well, yeah, imagine... now there's a, that's a very good idea. No, that that's a, that is a, a really inspired choice. I That's would be the one track in the whole Go Betweens discography that would fit the, the description of what Intrigue is trying to do. This is River of Money by the Go Betweens, written by Grant McLennan and featuring on the 1984 album Spring Hill Fair on Sire Records. Bottles had almost emptied themselves without effect. The television, a Samaritan during other tribulations, had been repossessed. But she left a travelling clock, thinking it incapable of functioning in another time zone. So the long vacant days of expensive sunlight were filled with the sound of her minutes, with the measuring of her hours. What was your, you know, take on the idea that you know punk was a year zero, and you go get rid of your, you know, synthesizers? How much did, did that affect uh, your thinking? Um, not really. I, I had a, I was not. the The good thing about punk and 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 to an extent post punk is that it took away that idea of virtuosity. Um, in terms of being able to start a band, you know, like they, they, they used to be um, uh, back in the early and mid seventies, you, you, you know, like it, there was demands or certain expectations of how well you could play to actually form a band and people would listen to you. And that, that was sort of busted down with, with, with punk. But as soon as um, post-punk came along and with all of, all of its adventure, I, adored it you know like I, I thought that mm. was great um i was 
I was, but then I was not someone who was into, you know, Noi and Can and all of those sort of um, hippie, um, you know, cool hippie bands. I wasn't really into that either. Yeah. I, th- no. I think he is kind of making that point, isn't he? That you know, post punk was, uh, you know, maybe was, well, this was with its haircuts. Yeah, yeah. The, the, this is what was interesting. He's cherry picked these tracks to show that these bands were were um you know like the, the length of the songs and the instrumentation and probably most of them a lot of them are sort of with few lyrics etc um and do do have prog you know pedigree and and that's yeah. that's interesting that that's something that that i hadn't thought of really and and uh, and i know these bands all those bands that you, you mentioned um andrew um i know but one of the things also Stephen Wilson is quite fond of saying, you know, he, and uh, I understand where he's coming from, this idea that, you know, being pretentious is, you know, kind of the just the flip side of being ambitious, you know, trying to go further, do something more. I'm guessing that's a sentiment that you would identify with, Robert. Which the one? Idea, the idea that kind of that, that you know, that, that being pretentious is merely just a kind of a need to you know, go further and embrace stuff, you know, and no, it's I'm... used as, it's used as a stick to, you know, to often, you know, to beat people who are kind of, you know, literary and ambitious and striving to sort of, you know, get beyond the world that they were dropped down in. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, I, I don't have any problems with pretension and, um, and Grant McLennan even had less problems <laughs> with pretension. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And um, yeah, and pretension can can come not only musically; it's obviously attitude, and uh, the, you know, especially the way you you know you carry yourself and the way you, um, you know, because that's that's built into me with the idea of being in a rock band anyway. Is pretension has to go along with it, you know? Otherwise, why you're there in the first place? But um, um, yeah. yeah, I think I think the the, the thing is with with me. I was just a little bit too much in love with with pop and the pop song and melody to really get into prog in its first phase or later through these bands. You know, I could I could I could appreciate. You know, obviously love bands like Magazine, similar bands. But then you know, like if, you know, like if you Magazine are an incredible band, but but to me, there's it's devoto. You know, like that. The lyric and the and the vocal delivery. He's got a great band, but I still sort of son Devoto. Do you know what I mean? Mm, um, yeah. yeah. And and that sort of that sort of once you take Devoto away and let the band play for nine minutes, it, it can be absolutely stunning. But I need the vocal in a way. Look, I mean, my my dog, as you can hear her, is uh, telling me that uh, we we need to wrap up quite soon. But I'm looking forward to Volume 2 with River of Money by the Go-Betweens on it. Um, Can you push that through? (laughs) I'm going to push that through, Robert. I'm going to make some some calls. Thank you. If you you know Stephen Wilson, please, please push that. Yeah. And just, I mean, again, just I just need to say it was a joy, a joy to speak to you, Robert. It's been a while, but it was really lovely to speak to you again. I really, really had a lovely time. I think the last time I spoke to you, Andrew, was was um, at um, in the kitchen at, at Ben McMahon's house. 
Absolutely. And um, I'm going to now hand you over to Ian because Ian has some news for you. I'll tell you, this is, this is strange. I'll be quick. On Friday, I realised it was 25 years since a certain fall record came out. So I emailed right. Bernard McMahon. I said this. Yeah. And he said, I'm in London. So I'm going to go for a pint with him this evening. Oh, really? Yeah. So, did, did you know him? You, you've known him before. So you... you... Yeah, we, we used to, uh, when he used to do press for things, yeah, yeah. in the sort of the 90s, I used to see quite, yeah. quite a bit of Bernard. Incidentally, I, I told him I was talking to you and he said to pass on his love and say that he bought the candle and the flame on vinyl in Rough Trade East the other day. So there you go. Oh, look, um, say a big hello to Bernard. I will. I, I will feed back. I'll let you know. <laughs> But it should be good because I've not seen it. It's got to be twenty years, you know, longer possibly. You know, he made these uh, films. You know, he made a film about Led Zeppelin. Yes, I know. I know. It's uh, he's, he's doing. He's, he's, he's doing a, all right, isn't he? A reckon a recognised rock and roll filmmaker now, isn't he? Yes, yeah. he is. Yeah. Thank you, Robert. I hope <sighs> to see you in the flesh very soon. Thank you for asking me to um to take part in this, and and I appreciate it a great deal. Joy and delight to have you on. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club. Now, that was very professional. Okay, you've been listening to Robert Forster, Ian Harrison, and myself, Andrew Mayle. That was the Mojo Record Club. Hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. And look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. You've been listening to the Mojo Radio Club with me, Robert Forster. Love from Two Wimps and a Witch.